This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? Hello, everybody. We are so happy that we have with us this evening our colleague, but also our good friend, Ms. Robin Seligman, uh, who is a really well-known lawyer here in Toronto, uh, a mentor to people like Catherine and myself, and someone who's very special to us. We're so happy that you uh, said yes to join us tonight to talk about business immigration programs. Woo-woo! Why don't you start by telling us a bit about yourself for the benefit of the audience? Okay, so I've been practicing immigration law since, well, a long time, since 1985, so about over 37 years, and um, I teach at Western Law. I'm an adjunct professor part-time. I teach an immigration law course every couple of years, and uh, I'm certified as a specialist by the Law Society of Ontario in the area of immigration, past chair of the Canadian Bar Association immigration sections and the Ontario Bar Association immigration sections, and um really have a passion for immigration and, and the politics as well, lobbying, um, and just, you know, very much involved and very happy to, to be here with my favorite ladies. Well, thank you. We're happy to have you. And we wanted to talk today about business and corporate immigration programs. That's an area of specialization for you, we know. Um, and what kind of programs are out there? What's available for practitioners to use? What kinds of categories? So uh, first of all, Canada has gone from one of the leaders in the area of business immigration to a laggard. Uh, That's the best I can say about it. We used to have some really innovative um, and I think generally successful programs. Of course, nothing's perfect. We had the investor category. We had the entrepreneur category, which were federal programs, which have basically uh, stopped many years ago, about 2014. And um, we haven't really replaced it with anything comparable. We have the self-employed category, which is still very limited program, uh, which appeals to really high level uh, people in cultural activities, athletics, almost at a world-class level. Um, but but it's, it says that, but it's really not as high as that high level. So it could uh, expand to or extend to teachers, music teachers, illustrators, filmmakers, freelance journalists, people in production. So a a bit broader than than it appears in the definition of self-employed, the way it's been applied, but it's a very small category. And generally it's taken two or three years to process those applications. So people sort of put it on the back burner and haven't really used it that much. But I'm gonna talk about that after because I think it's become maybe more of one of the viable programs in light of what's going on with our business immigration programs. We also have the startup visa program, which um, is a newish program and it's no longer a pilot, but um, the startup visa program has uh, become very, very popular. Just, you know, it's almost like where there's a leak 
in a, some place, you know, um, the water gravitates towards, you know, a hole or something like that. And I would say that's what happens with our business immigration programs as well, I guess, with other programs. But when there's no other options, um, you know, applicants and advisors uh, tend to gravitate to what's ever available. And lo and behold, we have all these innovative startup visa applications coming in and, and the numbers are huge. And so as a result, this sort of very boutique program has become pretty much overwhelmed with applications. And there's a lot of people abroad flogging this program. And, um, you know, time will tell what happens with the program because it was meant for startups. And just to give you an idea of how popular it is, there's approximately seven or 8,000 people in the queue for this program. And um, the target per annum for the entire business program, which would be self-employed and startup visa programs, is about 1,000 applicants a year. So wow. if you know there's about seven or 8,000 people in the queue for this program, um, you know, unfortunately you do the math and it just looks like it's something that may collapse over its own weight and popularity, which is really unfortunate because it, it, it can uh, and it has been a very innovative program, but you know, subject to abuse like any of the other programs. So those are two programs that lead directly to permanent residence. And then you get into the provincial nomination programs, which I'd say probably in order of popularity would be maybe British Columbia has been very robust and active in their, um, their entrepreneur program. Quebec, which I guess I won't talk about that much just because Quebec has their own rules and does their own thing. And um, I, I don't dabble in that area. If there's anything that comes with, up with Quebec, I usually refer it to one of our colleagues uh, that practices in the area of, of um, you know, in, is in Quebec law. And just because it's so different and, and I, you know, I don't take, take chances with that. So we have BC, which has been fairly popular, but I'm told that their main program is closed right now and they're dealing with the regional projects. So uh, regional pilots, which are outside the main areas. The, um, the Prairie provinces, you know, Manitoba and Saskatchewan and, and Alberta have had popular programs, which again are all, you know, being inundated with applications and, and um, you know, are slowing down as well. The Atlantic provinces have been very aggressive with their entrepreneur programs. And, uh, and then I would say one of the laggards as well as Ontario has just been, in, in my opinion, um, you know, a program that's really lagged behind. The, the difference between the self-employed and startup visa programs, the federal programs that lead directly to permanent residence are the provincial nominee programs. You come in on work permits and generally it's two year work permit. You have to do what you say you're gonna do, or should I say put your money where your mouth is and then make an application to transition to permanent status. So it's been taking years for those programs and they're quite competitive. And again, I'd say there's been a lot of um, uh, you know, people flogging them overseas, you know, uh, people selling these programs and aren't really telling applicants the truth about what they're getting their selves involved with. It's interesting on the timing issue that you raised, because obviously with the PMPs, you have to put your money where your mouth is, as you say. So you get the work permit, you work a couple years, then you submit the provincial application, which needs to get processed, and that takes time. Then you have to submit the federal application forms, which then again takes time, and then you become a PR. So I remember looking at the timeline for Ontario Entrepreneur and thinking, this is like a, anywhere from four to seven years 
on average, or I can maybe intra-company transferee, you know, the person in as a CEO of a new company and get them via, you know, uh, like a CEC, as long as they're not so self-employed, so we get some other partners going, et cetera, and structure it that way. So do you think that the entrepreneur PMPs are working? Um, I think that, you know, I have stayed away from them generally just for the reason you said, Catherine, you know, why would I go through the process of getting a work permit and having somebody be subjected to um, asset valuation and, you know, all the, um, the requirements of the provincial nominee programs, which are quite extensive, going into an expression of interest pool, maybe getting pulled, maybe not getting pulled, um, having to create jobs when, you know, you're coming to a new country, you don't know whether your business is going to be successful or not. So, you know, and getting yourself in a situation where you're coming in on a work permit that may or may not work out towards permanent residence. So I would say up until recently, my number one choice would probably be exactly what you said, do an intercompany transfer if they have a business abroad and they're able to maintain it bring them in on a work permit and let them work for a year and then get possibly 200 bonus points under express entry towards CEC because they're, um, if, if they're a high enough skill position, if they're coming in as a CEO of their company, you could, you know, put them down as a double O knock. The problem with that, um, two problems with that now, they don't get any points for Canadian work experience because um, self-employment doesn't count towards Canadian work experience. The other thing is they haven't pulled a CEC since September. So, you know, we don't know when the next draws are going to be. We don't know if it's going to go back to sort of what it was pre-pandemic where they were doing regular draws. I think up until September 2021, they were doing still doing regular draws under the express entry system, but um, they were focusing on CECs, which made sense and, and it was a good thing. But now everything's sort of... Um, been frozen. I know that the minister has said they're going to start doing draws again, so time will tell. But Catherine, I, I agree with you. If if the CEC starts up again, then I would. Um, I, I still think that's the best option. I mean, for me, I think what serious business person in their right mind would subject themselves to this process in order to start a business in Canada? I mean, if we really want to incentivize people to come here and invest in our economy and create jobs and create businesses, the system is so unwieldy that like, you know, a true entrepreneur makes decisions like pretty quickly, right? Like they see an opportunity, they need to grab that opportunity. If there's, if there's a lab, if there's like a, a business opportunity, you don't want to talk about what's going to be happening two years from now. You want to seize that opportunity now. So it almost seems like Canada's closed for business at this point. And I mean, with all due respect, it seems to me that this is what happens when you put government in charge of a business program. Business people should be running a business program. Yes, I totally agree with you, Chantal. And for example, the um, startup visa program, which was originally being processed in about 12 months, made sense. You had entrepreneurial people, people that are being innovative and um, starting uh, businesses that were, um, you know, in the tech industry. And I mean, everybody refers to Shopify, which started in Canada. I mean, but they're taking a chance. And again, most startup visa startups, sorry, startups don't don't succeed. But layered on top of this now with this huge backlog is if it's going to take, let's say at best now, a few years to process those applications, what are people doing in the interim? I mean, they're entitled to get a work permit, but who is going to give up 
you know, their life and their, their world to come over, maybe set up a business that's going to be successful and that, or that could fail. And even by the time, you know, they set it up and it fails, their application is still going to be in the system for permanent residence. And then for sure, they're going to get refused. So, you know, I agree with you. I, I think that what's happened is the government were so got become so gun shy after the investor program and the entrepreneur program. They're so worried about people taking advantage. They became very, very risk adverse. And as a result of that, they have just basically shut down the system, which I don't think they should. I agree. Like, why not? Let's delegate it. Let's bring back the investor category and let people who are, you know, good business people with proven track records invest a certain amount of money. I think you'd have a lineup of people that maybe want to invest $500,000 and not get it back and have um, legitimate organizations distribute the funds, let's say, put it into infrastructure or health or wherever else Canada feels that they want money. What's wrong with that? I mean, I know people say, oh, that's buying a visa. It's not buying a visa because you could put residency requirements on it and have to pay taxes and have to live in Canada as opposed to what was happening before with the investor category. People were coming and they called them astronauts. They dropped their families off. They believe they wouldn't pay any taxes at all in Canada. Meanwhile, their family would be going to university. They'd be living here. They'd be buying real estate. But that really was the only sort of investments. You could change that very easily. You could tweak that. That was just a program that was set up to be taken advantage of. And it doesn't have to be that way. Like make it set up a system that works for Canada and helps Canadians. I think the government started to get really shy of these business programs back in the 90s with the family business category. I think I'm going to date us all now, but uh, <laughs> back then. job offer. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it was being abused, right? And, and so then they did the investor and there was the backlash about how it was a program for the rich. And then, you know, entrepreneurs. But Canada was built on entrepreneurs. Canada was built on people uh, using their imagination, starting up business, taking risk, and making it successful. So how, how do we have, how does Canada get a program that's balanced? What do you think, you know, the, the next steps should be? Do we start, does the, you know, uh, Bar Association and Immigration Consultants Association start lobbying the government for these kinds of programs? Or, you know, more entrepreneurs kicking up a fuss, businesses? Well, organizations have been lobbying the government for that. Like I just saw that the new Canadian Immigration Lawyers Association just put out an article about this maybe a week ago about how there's a, a huge gap um, in terms of Canada not being able to attract business immigrants because we don't have any viable programs. Um, it just doesn't seem like it's a high priority at the government level. It hasn't been enough because they've been lobbying. There, there's been a lot of lobbying, but we, we need to push it over the edge somehow. But, well, you know, in my opinion, sorry. Well, my, I was just going to say, go ahead. No, in my opinion, you know, you can see how not serious they are about the business programs because they allocated a thousand people a year out of 425 or $30,000, sorry, 30,000 people. You have 1,000 spots allocated for the entire federal business program. Like that's, that's ridiculous. It should, it could be 10 times as many, like why not 10,000 people then? And that's, that's still insignificant. So yeah, I think so for 2022, the target for, again, self-employed startup visa programs, 1,000 people, 2023, 
1,000 people. 2024, 1,500 people. So there's no plan in the future to, to really bring in business people. And then I was going to comment, uh, I lobbying. You know, for whatever reason, the government, you know, I don't know if they, they take lawyers seriously. I mean, they'll ask us questions about the law and certain specifics, but when it comes to certain things, I don't think it's, it's enough, uh, especially in this area, just for lawyers to be lobbying. I really think um, it, you know, it could be the Chamber of Commerce, it could be, you know, all kinds of business organizations, maybe lawyers could lead the charge on that, but there really has to be a consolidated effort to properly lobby the government to say we need a competitive viable business program. I mean, they have them in Ireland, all over Europe, the Americans with their EB5 program, it's not perfect, it comes and it goes, but they have a program where they recognize people put in a certain amount of money and um, we're going to let them come to Canada or, you know, come to their countries because they're putting up a certain amount of money. And, you know, it, you know, for Canada, you make it non-refundable. Give me half a million dollars and, you know, you need to come in and pay taxes and live in the country and acclimatize to the country. Otherwise, you're going to lose your permanent residence and so will your family, you know, so you can do it. It's just a matter of the will and um, not being so afraid to, to create a program that might get abused. Because with ministerial instructions, if they want, they can probably shut it down quickly, right? Well, every program might get abused. Every program does get abused. I mean, literally, even outside of immigration, there is no single government program in the world that does not get abused by someone somehow. It is, quite frankly, the cost of doing business. You have to accept that there will be a margin of error, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, there's a lot of good to be had from a program like this. You know, I, we, we are preaching to the converted sisters. So like we've been practicing in the area a long time and you just see so many really qualified people, let's say they're 40 or God forbid 45, uh, you know, and they've been running their own business and, you know, they don't have PhDs and you just have, you know, I got nothing for you. There's just, there's no path for you. We don't need you. And it's really unfortunate because I do think that we're passing up some very experienced and qualified business people. And under these programs as well, for example, the startup visa program, there's recently been a lot of uh, case law developing around this. And officers now focus on, oh, you know, is this application to get immigration for immigration purposes or really a startup, you know, idea? Why can't it be a combination? Why shouldn't somebody be able to have both, like a dual intent, basically? So they really go after people and say, well, we don't really think that you want to set up the business. We think you're only doing this for immigration purposes, or it's not, you know, it's heavily on the side of maybe you want to immigrate to Canada. Well, of course, people want to immigrate to Canada. They're using the program because it's a program available, but they can also be, you know, entrepreneurs and wanting to set up a business. But so, you know, I, I just think as the demand uh, increases, the refusals will increase, and, you know, officers end up looking for creative ways to refuse people. And we've seen that in other programs before as well. So I think that's a bit of a warning out there for people that are using the program. Maybe applications that would not have been questions before, maybe you're going to have a hard time with them. I also think to myself, you know, what training do the officers get in order to complete the forensic audit? and the business evaluations that they're looking at. Because, I, and I'm curious about that. I, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know if anyone here does, but I, I don't think it's a lot. Because I get asked 
on a regular basis for literally it's it's like I'm completing a forensic audit of my client because we're about to you know sell their entire business and I'm handing this over to the immigration officer which I I don't like to do because now I'm divulging you know client lists and sales figures and all this information to a consulate or you know an immigration officer abroad where there could be locals who have access to that information. Maybe there's a lot of proprietary information. A lot of times it's the client lists you want to keep quiet. So, you know, it, it's just one of those things where what kind of training do they have in order to be able to complete the task? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Even the, the uh, you know, a lot of these programs, now you have to come up with these business plans. And so people are retaining, obviously, companies that do this for a living. They, they know how to do marketing. They know how to help you with research. But even the recent case flow that I've seen on, on, on the startup visa program, they're saying, no, no, that business plan doesn't make sense because you didn't look into that market or it wasn't specific enough. So, yeah, like, who are these officers to be telling, you know, somebody who's hired a professional to help them come up with a business plan that their plan isn't good enough, that they know better? So and, and that will go with all aspects of it, the financials. Uh, I mean, we do allow the delegation of third parties for asset um, valuation. So I agree. I, I think these type of programs, you know, are better off being run by business people, probably, you know, a portion of it with maybe some government oversight. And for some of them, like the PMPs, you know, entrepreneur category, the person's already done it once. And, and now you, they apply to, you know, immigration and someone's saying, well, your business plan isn't that great. Well, you're also kind of telling someone who's already been through the trenches once. And I understand there's going to be, you know, maybe a language difference or cultural differences. But usually that person is astute enough to understand that there there's some, you know, hills that they're going to overcome. Yeah, I, I was actually going to go there that... I've seen a trend with self-employed applications as well, where the officer is saying, well, yes, I understand that you've been successful doing X, Y, Z in your own country, but the Canadian market is completely different. And you haven't satisfied me that you're able to replicate that kind of success in Canada. Well, of course the market is different. I mean, they're applying from another country. It doesn't matter which country you come from, the market is going to be different than it is in Canada. That doesn't make it, like if you're coming from the, the United States, the market is different from in Canada. And I almost feel like there's a piece of systemic racism built into that, where you're saying to people like, oh, we want you to come over here and um, you know be self-employed in Canada, but at the same time, we're not going to look at any of the experience you have from another country because it's it's different from what we have here. That makes no sense to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So maybe that's another tip is that even under the self-employed category, which is apply and wait for a long time to get permanent status, there may be some merit to telling applicants, um, you know, you better get a work permit first under C-11 self-employed work permit. And again, put your money where your mouth is, because this is going to take a long time. And I don't think you can sit at home and wait for years for these applications to be processed. And that's sort of the theme that's that's coming out in all areas. You know, you gotta come in, I think you gotta come in uh, and transition to permanent status. You know, you have to put your, you know, foot on the ground here, get involved, see what's going on and um, try and make it. And, and then either do your application simultaneously if you can, 
or, um, you know, apply after you may fit into another category. Well, unless you're, you know, a 23-year-old PhD graduate from a Canadian institution (laughs) who has millions of dollars under their belt, uh, I think that is the only way. You have to work your way towards permanent resident status. All the categories seem to be set up for that. One of the things I have noticed in the provincial nominee programs is a lot more community-based. Like you've got your Atlantic pilot project, et cetera. Uh, I know Manitoba has some community-sponsored based uh, PMP uh, application processes. What are your thoughts on how it went from federal now to provincial, and now more community-based. Do you think by getting communities more involved to help with immigration selection, it's it's going to benefit Canada? Or do you think well, it's going to hinder the process? Well, you know, it's going to hinder the process that people that don't want to go to more remote communities because the regional programs and community-based programs are usually outside major centers. So they're trying to attract, they really are trying to attract people to uh, smaller communities. So I think it's a great thing, but it shouldn't be at the expense of other people that, you know, want to apply in, in other business programs that are not necessarily community-based or regional uh, and, you know, geared towards small, small cities and small towns. So again, it's a fine balance, but I think there's enough numbers in our space in our immigration program, they can get a lot more business people applying. I um I was interested in what you said earlier because it 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 mirrored some thoughts that I was having as well that there's so much misinformation out there and people that are feeding on the fact that so many doors are closed to business persons in Canada. So you have this very very narrow crack in the door that's open. Um but realistically there's only a handful of people that are being accepted every year. Um they're in many cases, they're they're balanced off against each other. So it's only the creme de la creme of that small little group that's actually getting through. But yet, you have a lot of people overseas that are peddling these programs like crazy and persuading people to put in applications. And I wonder about the ethics of that. Because, I mean, people like you and I would say, you know, in good faith, to, to a potential client that, you know, look, you could try this, you could try that, but your chances are so remote and it's going to take such a long time. Are you sure you want to, are you sure you want to try this? Right. But yet you get a lot of people overseas that are saying, oh, you know, they're not telling people the realistic view on the ground and they're just taking gobs of money from these people for applications that are probably not going to work. Or if they do, it's going to be so late that it's no practical use to the applicant. I, I totally agree with you. So I think, listen, I'm speaking on behalf of lawyers when I, you know, myself and lawyers when I talk about this, um, you know, and it should be for everybody in the area, like registered consultants as well. There is an ethical obligation to advise potential applicants and clients that look at, you may qualify for this program. On paper, it looks like you do. But the reality is that it's going to take you several years to get through at best. And there's no guarantee. And you're not getting your money back from the organizations where you're paying fees to get your letters of um, support, uh, you know, for the startup visa program, or, you know, you know, if you're putting in money into the provincial nomination programs, if you set up a business and it fails, nobody's giving you any money back. So yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be truthful. And I think one other thing even to tell people now is, you know, 
they could cancel programs and you may lose out even they'll apply the law retroactively and there's not going to be much you can do about it it's already gone um you know i don't know if it went all the way to supreme court but um uh on, when they canceled the investor program i think it did go to the supreme court and the court said it's fine so governments could cancel programs change programs part way you've made these big investments um that you hope are going to you know lead to permanent residence and you get nothing so yeah i do think it's a big a big problem and i don't know how you stop people from basically defrauding people abroad you know tell the truth uh and there that there are a lot of intermediaries selling the programs they make a lot of money they make a lot of money and um and they're also getting involved now in like actually sourcing businesses and selling those businesses and being a go-between, not just on the immigration side, but on the business side and charging huge fees for that. Like there's that guy, was it in the Yukon or the Northwest Territories recently? There was a big lawsuit uh, against um, some kind of an agent that was, you know, feeding this uh, investor a big line about, you know, this uh, option of getting immigration under the PNP. And it all fell down like a house of cards and the person lost a huge amount of money, and now there's a big lawsuit going. I, I think there's actually more than one. Well, yeah, I, I think that people have to understand you may get nothing out of this. So I guess look at it whether you want, you know, if you would be willing to invest the money without the immigration side, because that's really the way you got to look at it. Mm-hmm. I think the problematic part is now people that are already in the system and, you know, the numbers weren't as huge when they started a year ago. You know, what do we do with those people? Because They've invested money, they've put money into programs, and I don't know what's going to happen with them. I just, I really wish the government would increase the numbers. I just don't understand why they would keep um, a business program at 1,000 spots per year as a target. It just, it's just minuscule. So we've so that's talked. An area of lobbying. We yeah, we, we've talked about the business programs, the federal ones, both of them, and the PMPs. What are your favorite? kind of corporate business programs? Which ones are your favorite or strategies? Uh, I would say, uh, similar to what you said, I would like to bring people in on work permits first and let them get a feel for the the country, the the business environment, not to invest huge amounts of money before they get over here and, you know, and don't make all these commitments that you can't keep. I mean, they have to come up with a business plan and have an idea. But I'd say, you know, there's intercompany transfers, there's C11. Um, you could try an LMIA for your own business, but now you have to advertise. I got rid of the owner operator, which used to be a good one. But, um, you know, I, I think come in on a temporary work permit, um, have a proper business plan, be ready to really relocate and spend time here. Um, the other thing that works with that is because if they come over on the work permit, their spouse gets an open work permit. And that's pretty good if you know if they have capacity to work if they find a good job maybe they'll find an employer so it sort of gives you double opportunities instead of only relying on the uh the business applicant you may end up relying on the spouse that i don't want to be stereotyped but let's say you know and it would be typical that somebody says you know my husband runs this business and you know i you know i work as a teacher or something like that you know, that teacher could get a job as an early childhood educator here without having a teaching degree. And they might get a company that wants to sponsor them and they may qualify under one of the provincial nomination programs. So, you know, you want to always have people in touch with you to know what they're doing, what their spouse is doing, just so you can, you know, give a better, uh, you know, assessment and, and analysis of what might be the best option. 
So I think a helpful hint for practitioners would be make sure you know the work permit categories so that way you can get the person to Canada to then talk about the various business options. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of the programs, um, you know, C10 significant benefit is another one. If there's going to be job creation, something unusual, if they're going to be starting their own business, um, you know, or they're, they're bringing in something that's, that's unusual. You might try a C10, C11 is the entrepreneur category and C12 would be the intercompany transfers. So those are all really good. And then there's LMIAs. So I'd say like my starting point normally well, I do more than one thing, but I usually start looking at the temporary programs right now just because the permanent programs are just, um, you know, way too long for processing. Yeah, I um, I also think that an overarching message to give to the clients is that if you want to immigrate as a business person, whichever way that you choose, whether it's like work permit first or PNP or whatever it is, it, it's work. It, it, it requires a big commitment. You better be serious about it. You better uh, be a true entrepreneur in the sense that you're willing to take risks, including the risk that you might lose money that you've invested, or you might spend two or three years here and not in the end um, even achieve permanent residence, right? So people have got to be really committed to this as a long-term strategy. It's not for, you know, a lazy person who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth and has had everything handed to them and thinks they're just going to buy their way into Canada. Um, you know, I, I think that that is a message that needs to be hammered home to people because otherwise you get a very disappointed client. Yeah. And so when people start saying, well, how much time do I have to start, do I have to spend in Canada? That's always, always a warning for me. Oh, because, yeah. You know, if you're setting up a business, but you're already figuring out how you're not going to be here, um, that's a waste of time. And I tell people, don't don't even think about it because if you're not committed and, you know, willing to spend time and actually set up the business, um, you're just not going to succeed. And Ontario is coming out with, an, a, you know, a new pilot program. Uh, the details haven't been announced yet. But, you know, like all, many of the other programs, there's a, there's a requirement that you have to spend 75% of your time in Canada. So it's not a free ride to get a work permit and then just, you know, be an astronaut, drop your family off and go home and come and go as you please. Like you really have to... I agree. You know, as I said, put your money where your mouth is. If you want to come here as a business person, you need to actually do the work and do the research and find a viable business and find a community that you'd be happy living with your family in. And, um, you know, don't proceed otherwise. Playing the devil's advocate here. (laughs) What would be wrong for a person to come to Canada, set up their business and then go back home? And let's say they go back and forth, but don't spend that much time here. If they're employing Canadians, if they're growing a business here, they're paying taxes here, et cetera. Is that like the corporate tax at least? Is that, is that really, do you think that the public would really see that as problematic? I guess it depends. The devil's in the detail. Um, you know, if they're paying the minimal, minimal taxes and they're, you know, not um, really spending, listen, if they send a certain, certain amount of time here and they become permanent residents and they're obligated to pay taxes on worldwide income. So I don't think people would be offended if people come and go once they become permanent residents, as long as they're paying their taxes. But in the scenario you set out, Catherine, there's nothing wrong with pe- keeping these people here on work permits. You know, they can stay for long periods of time until they're committed. There, there is that requirement to become a permanent resident that you intend to reside in Canada. So, you know, 
I just think the history has been there's been a lot of abuse with people dropping family off, um, you know, taking the, you know, all the advantages of the benefits of being in Canada, like health coverage, inexpensive schools, freedoms. And, you know, I don't blame people for wanting to get their family settled here. But we don't have a program, an astronaut program, drop your family off and go home. So I would say until uh, we have a program where there's not a commitment to reside, then, you know, I think there's there needs to be a commitment to reside in the country. You Doesn't mentioned mean 100% of the time, but, you know, a big chunk of the time. Yeah, you mentioned intention to reside. A lot of the every PMP has that intention to reside in that province, right? Like the provincial nominee program says, hey, if I'm going to give you this certificate, then you must genuinely intend to reside in my province, in my community, doing ABC. What exactly does that mean? So for the practitioners listening, what does that mean? How do you explain to a client what that means? So the way I explain it is when you're applying, you have to have a bona fide intention to reside in the province where you're applying. And I think now, because all the programs are work permit based, before you can even qualify for permanent residence, no matter what, you're going to have to spend probably, you know, three, four years in a province before you're going to get permanent residence. But if you change your mind after that, you're totally entitled to change your mind because we have uh, the charter, which allows you to move anywhere in Canada. So as long as your intention is bona fide, it's fine. Um, And, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I think people have to know that you have to counsel your clients that the intention has to be real and they have to intend to reside in the province. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I, I was going to say as well, like this goes back to something you said earlier that that's a red flag question for me is like, uh, you know, not only how long do I have to stay in Canada before I can get out, like as if it's jail or something like that, but also the question of, do I really have to live there? It's like, well, if you're asking me that, like, it might be a legitimate question, but it gives me a little bit of a red flag. Like you don't really want to be there. And I think a lot of the PNPs now, they have that requirement where you, you have to have some kind of a connection to that province before they'll even consider you, like whether it's a you know job offer sometimes or a family member, like they look for those kinds of connections. But for me, it's, it's about having a legitimate, honest intention. Now, intentions can change, right? Like I always tell people, like after you get your permanent residence, suppose you're living there for whatever, six months, a year, one month, whatever it is, and your circumstances change, legitimately they change. Well, that's not an issue of you had a fraudulent intention. That's an issue of your intention ultimately changed. But the dividing line is when you got your PR, right? Your intention has to be legitimate up until the time you get your PR. After that, I mean, if stuff changes in your life and if someone was to come back to you later on and try to challenge you on it, you've got to be able to prove that that was the case. Right. But if it's if it's an honest change, I mean, that's that's legit. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I, I think that's that's the talk that you have to have with a client. So they understand that there is a, the requirement to, to intend to have a bona fide intention to live in the province where you're applying. If you're going through one of the provincial nominee programs, definitely. This became a real big issue with Quebec, the Quebec Investor Program, right? Oh, yeah. It's still um, an issue. Yeah, yeah. And that program, you know, opens and closes. I I don't know what's going on with it now, but there there was a lot of issues with that. So I I think people have to be aware of it. Council definitely has to advise clients. It's a requirement. And don't do the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Don't worry about it. Tell them the truth. You have to intend to reside there. If you change your mind after you get your permanent residence, that's up to you. 
It was mentioned earlier how it takes a lot of work to submit these applications. And obviously, one of those pieces is the financials, because the government wants to be sure that they're avoiding money laundering, etc. I find these applications challenging because in some cultures, they're not as paper heavy as Canada is. How do you manage that in, in, with respect to your clients? Have you ever come across the fact that there's not a lot of paper? And you know, what kinds of things do you submit with those applications to demonstrate the, the legitimate accrual of funds through the business? Um, you know what? I think there's less room for flexibility in that area. It used to be um, people probably had to provide less than they do now, but now there's third parties that assess assets and uh, review the accumulation of assets. But I think very solid bank statements, um, you know, no large unusual deposits over periods of time, unless it, it might have been you sold real estate, you put money back into the accounts, um, you know, just proof over a long period of time that those assets belong to you, uh, financial statements, paying taxes in the country where you live, even the problem with that is there's a lot of countries where people just don't pay taxes. So they'll laugh you at you if you ask. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's. <laughs> Do they point it, to? It's always a problem. Yeah. It's a problem when, you know, the paperwork isn't as uh, solid as, as you'd like to have it. But you, I guess you tell people ahead of time, you know, you're, there's an obligation to prove where your funds came from. And if you can't do it, there's a, a possibility you could get refused on that basis. Do you get like client affidavits, sales agreements, contracts, anything like that? Maybe yeah, real, real estate valuations, um, you know, customs forms, is- import, export, that kind of thing. Yeah, all that's great. All that's great. Wait, would you think about, uh, you know, maybe hiring a chartered accountant or someone with some forensic experience to go back through that? I mean, like, I'm allergic to math. So I, I became a lawyer so that I would not have to do math. And when I think about these business applications, it just makes my head explode. Like, I don't know how to read these financial documents, a lot of them. Like, would it be better just to hire a third party, like an auditor or something to go through that and do it for you? Well, you know, what are you hiring them for? You know, it's not easy. And I think it's very expensive to do audits. Like for the, um, the PNPs, I know for Ontario, you have to do have a third party um, do an asset valuation. So it might be worthwhile. It would be thousands of dollars to get it done. So, you know, but if somebody's, you know, going through this category, these categories and willing to invest a lot of money, it's not a bad idea at all. But the other thing is, if people are coming over on uh, work permits, I think there's less of an onus to provide there, you have to provide some of the documentation, but it's not as onerous as applying and being having to show, um, you know, the history of all your accumulation of wealth, uh, you know, under some of these permanent programs or the PNP programs. So, you know, it, it is, seems a bit uh, less onerous going under the work permit route to get over. And then once you're here, you prove that you've set up the business and established, then you have that documentation. Yeah. How- I, listen, the more evidence, the better. How, how can they say you can't do it when you've already just done it for one or two years in Canada, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, the unfortunate part for that is if you come in and run a business for a couple of years, you're not going to qualify for a lot of the, well, for Ontario, I know that you don't qualify for their entrepreneur program because you're already here running the business and their idea is, well, we want to bring in new people, which, mm. you know, we're having discussions with them about that. But, you know, I don't agree with that. I think if somebody's come in within the last two, three years of actually set up a business, they would be a perfect candidate for the program. Even the last five, because it takes a good couple of years before it becomes really viable. Yeah, yeah. 
So that's right. something um, I think it's worthwhile pushing for for the different in the different provincial nominee programs. Maybe you know I, I'm not 100% sure on the other programs, but I think for Ontario, uh, you know, I know it's a problem. And um, you know, on behalf of the Ontario Bar Association, we're actually having a small group discussion with them on how to maybe deal with entrepreneurs in, in a more flexible manner. So that's something that we're trying to work on. Do you think it's possible? Do you think that there can be successful business programs? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've, sh- we've proven it in the past. It's just that, you know, the world's changed. People have gotten more sophisticated. People know more. There's a lot more people out there taking advantage and pushing people to do things and selling programs. So we have to be savvy and we have to, you know, tailor our programs accordingly and make sure that, you know, to the best of our ability, that there's not a lot of abuse, but be willing to take some risk. Mm-hmm. Well, Robin, we're just about out of time for tonight. We just want to say thank you so much for your time. We know how busy you are. You've got a thriving practice, and I know that you're always really busy. So we appreciate you sharing your insights. Uh, this is a subject I know that a lot of people are super interested in, and our listeners are going to be fascinated by all the things you had to say. Oh, it's my pleasure, and it's lovely to see both of you. The Canadian Refugee Protection Law Guide provides a concise yet comprehensive summary of the procedural and strategic elements involved in achieving protected person status for one's client. This handbook, written by one of Canada's foremost experts on the topic, David Matus and Gentiana Morina, guides you through the very practical detail on the various programs available, how clients physically reach Canada and begin refugee protection proceedings, and it will tell you how to prepare a claim. To get your copy today, visit emond.ca forward slash CRPG and enter promo code CRPG10 for 10% off. And now we'd like to tell you some tales from the trenches. Otherwise known as things we wish we didn't do. So you know how in litigation, they always tell you never ask your client in an examination a question that you don't know the answer to. Well, I learned this lesson the hard way. Um, Many years ago, I had a refugee claim. It was a really strong refugee claim. It was a male applicant from a very, very conservative society who had broken off an engagement with a woman. Now, it doesn't sound so serious from a Canadian perspective, but in this particular culture, breaking off that engagement was considered to shame his entire family and to shame the girl's entire family. So his own father and brothers and the girl's father and brothers were all trying to kill him to basically avenge the the family honor on both sides. So... He broke off the engagement while he was traveling. He was already outside of his country. Came to Canada, made a refugee claim on this basis. The hearing was going swimmingly. Uh, The guy was a great witness. The country condition documents were really clear that someone who had done something like this would definitely be in danger. And I guess it kind of lulled me into a false sense of security. Because after everything was going so well, I decided to ask one last question. And I said to him, well, suppose you did have to go back to your country. What would happen to you? What do you think would happen to you if you had to go back? 
And I thought he was going to say something like, well, I suppose I would be forced into the marriage or I'd have to go into hiding or someone would harm me or something like that. What he actually said was, well, I suppose I'd have to arrange to have the girl killed. And it went really quiet in the room. You could have heard a pin drop. And I basically looked up at the board member and I said, well, you pretty much have to accept him now because not only is he in danger, he's now put her in danger. And I ended up getting a bench positive, but boy, did it teach me a lesson never ever to ask a question that I didn't already have the answer to. There was one time I had to go to the IED for a full day hearing. And in the days leading up, I started to not feel very well. And I was a little bit concerned I wouldn't be able to make the full day hearing because people around me were dropping like flies from the stomach flu. It was brutal. But I decided that I think I had enough energy to do it. I had met with my client eight or nine times for at least one or two hours each time to prepare them as a witness to take the stand at the IED hearing. We get to the IED hearing and my stomach's kind of churning, but I knew, I knew I could do it. But the stress of the day, I thought, well, we'll figure this out, not a problem. Well, lo and behold, I start asking my client a bunch of questions. And we're about an hour into the hearing. And my client decides to get quite creative. And all of a sudden, the stress. I know my client's not telling the truth. What do I do? So, of course, I ask for a recess. So that way I can pull my client aside and talk to them. And it would also give me an opportunity to maybe get some water and deal with things because I wasn't feeling that well. Lo and behold, the IAD panel member declined my request for a recess. Now I'm even more stressed. I start sweating. I'm starting to really feel very, very physically sick. And I don't know what to do because I can't proceed and prejudice. I can't proceed knowing that my client might not be telling the truth, but I can't withdraw either because I don't want to prejudice my client. All of this while I'm really not feeling well. All of a sudden, it hit me like a truck, and I didn't feel well, and I ran out of the IED hearing to the bathroom. It was not a wonderful moment for me in my career, but I had no choice. I was so horribly sick, and eventually the IED members came in and told me that they had postponed the hearing, which I was thankful for. However, I spent a great deal more time in that loo before I could go out and face my client. But then my client and I had a conversation about telling the truth at the IED hearing. And it was also a good learning experience for me because I think I should have been a lot more forceful with why I wanted to make sure I got a recess or a postponement. All I needed was 15, 20 minutes to collect both myself and to have a conversation with my client. Tales from the Trenches. Things I wish I didn't do. Need a concise guide on all practical and procedural aspects of Canadian immigration law? How about a contemporary resource that examines the fundamental avenues, requirements, and remedies for immigration? Have you heard about Iman's immigration law series? Well, duh, I think so, because we're the general editors. Yeah, it's true. 
Catherine Swicky and Chantelle Delage are the general editors, and Iman's practical and contemporary series offers you a clear, concise, balanced guide on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Literally the only time in our lives that anyone has called us balanced. <laughs> Learn more about Iman's immigration law series at iman.ca forward slash ILS. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Dana Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emon.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925, extension 227. My name is Dana Hawes, and I'm the senior publisher at Emon Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content including our Immigration Law Series, edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our Emond Exam Prep ICCRC practice exams, and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. Emond is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.